0: Yes, of course. Burl (laughs) Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, you have found an experience of a lunchtime. True crime uncensored. On outlawradiolive.com, the standard of a beleaguered and tempest-tossed industry. I am the legendary Burl Bear. That's Mark C.G. Boyer fact checker extraordinaire and this is a good thing this is radio or you'd see what he has on his head speaking of head well maybe that's not the best way to preface this grilling Dahmer which is one of the great titles the night that uh, Jeffrey Dahmer was arrested uh, and the cops uh, went to his house uh, these weren't detectives there at first they were just your regular street cops mm-hmm. And uh, they called and said, be better send a homicide detective out here, big time, right away. And uh, they certainly did. And they sent a guy with a, a Wyatt Earp style mustache, uh, a well-known uh, detective, uh, Pat Kennedy. And he shows up and they've got Jeffrey Dahmer on the floor. The sergeant, police sergeant, has him kind of like a semi-hog tied. He's got his knee in Dahmer's back, holding him down. And the sergeant says, Look in the refrigerator.
1: <laughs> you started the story without me. Well, that's good. I'm glad. You got the interesting part, the, the, the cliffhanger.
0: <laughs> yeah, so that's where we are in the story. I'll let you finish the story, or I can't, whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, yeah. So, uh, so Patrick Kennedy is there in this um, in this little apartment that you know. And I mean, they—I'm sure you explained this a little bit earlier, but him and his partner—they kind of thought this was a big joke, right? And uh, they they kind of thought that they were going to get there and it was going to be a big hope, But once they got in and they saw the officers there and they're a little disheveled, the guy on the on the ground is a little disheveled, and they said, "Look in the fridge and." You know, I don't know what he was expecting, you know, but yeah, he opens the door and there is a, basically a severed head um, sitting in a box, sort of staring back at him.
0: No matter how long you've been in the law enforcement game, finding the severed head has to be a little off-putting.
1: Well, it's just, it's so unexpected and it's so shocking, right?
0: Mm. <laughs> I did find my telephone in the refrigerator. Well, I borrow. I keep mine in the freezer. They last long. Yeah, they had to last longer if you keep it in the freezer. I'll remember that next time I'm on a date. Okay, where were we?
1: So as soon as they as soon as they saw this, you know, they realized, holy cow, this is serious. Um, this is you know like this isn't a joke, and they got to get to the bottom of this. So so they get Dahmer up to his feet, and um, they you know they they haul him out of there. But just prior to that, just prior to, to him. Looking in the refrigerator, uh, Dahmer because he had been kind of roughed up by these um, uh, all, you know these officers that were in uniform because he struggled. Like they they saw these photographs, they sort of saw that there was something to this guy, and they were I guess wanting to just put him. You know where they could kind of keep an eye on him, so they grabbed him, and uh, he resisted. So they kind of had wrestled him down to the ground. So he was a little disheveled looking. The cops were kind of heavy breathing, and uh, as soon as Kennedy walked in, even before he had opened any refrigerator door, uh, Dahmer said to him, "Are you going to beat me up too?" And he said, "No, I'm not here to beat you up. I'm just, you know, I'm just here to sort of check things out and to get your story, basically." And it was at that point where they said, check in the fridge, Pat. And that's when he looked in the fridge, saw the head. And then they realized they had to get him downtown um, and get him into an interrogation room.
0: Yeah, and treat him him nicely. It was very smart of Kennedy to answer the way he did and not beat him up. Right.
1: Because yeah, exactly. Like, he was kinda t- Dahmer's, very few minutes there, that was kind of Dahmer's only friend in the room, right?
0: <laughs> right. Well, that's all that research that, that shows that if you have, say, a man and a woman in a situation where their lives are at stake or they're under some sort of threat, there'll be immediate bonding and uh, even sexual attraction. Maybe it's that, you know, gee, we're going to be dead. Maybe we should get you pregnant first, you know? <laughs>
1: Well, isn't that the basis of all action films? <laughs> yeah. No
0: of yeah, that's pretty much it. Night and day. Yeah. yeah. The,
1: beautiful, bu- the beautiful woman, the reluctant hero. They hate each other.
0: They love each other. They hate each other. Yeah. You know <laughs> ah, <laughs> Got a War of the Roses with guns. Yeah. yeah. Mark. Mark <laughs> Boyer. Well, has a question or an observation, War of the Roses starts out with the two
2: of them hating each other. Yes. So. That's right. It is it ends the same way. Oh, God, was that okay. best ending yeah. ever, pushing yeah. his hand away. Yeah. Just tremendous. I watched Marnie last night. So oh, Alfred away. Hitchcock. Yeah. Mm. Meanwhile. Yeah. Meanwhile, back in Gotham City. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the not-so-nice love story of Dahmer. <laughs>
2: now, uh, uh, how did you get involved with Pat, and how did you end up telling this?
1: Um, <clears throat> well, I actually wanted to do an article about Dahmer. Um, And so, you know, I was kind of interested in true crime as a reader. You know, I was always interested in true crime shows. So I thought, you know, I'm going to kind of just try my hand at true crime writing. And I kind of settled on Dahmer uh, for a number of different reasons. But one was because I was kind of interested in exploring what kind of made him who he was. Some of the other serial killers and other killers that I was kind of familiar with, you kind of could get a handle on them. But um, to me, Dahmer was still a mystery even after almost 20-something years. So I thought, you know, I'm just going to do an article about him. And I did some research, and I had actually reached out to a young filmmaker from Wisconsin who had done a documentary on Dahmer. And um, just kind of wanting to kind of touch base with him. I knew he was a young guy. He was from Wisconsin. So that was kind of my first sort of step into trying to meet somebody related to the case. Never dreaming I'd get, you know, sort of the inside scoop or that close to it. But anyways, it was Chris uh, that actually suggested I talk to Patrick. So he was the one that connected us by email. And so we began kind of a you know, several months kind of correspondence. And um, I guess he was, I mean, he was very generous and very kind to me right off the bat. He might have been a little bit hesitant just to kind of find out, like, what was my motivation. Right, all this. like, we wanted to marry Dahmer, you know. <laughs> Right, exactly, and I think he had had his share of people who had approached him wanting to do interviews that were really kind of focused on the more grotesque angles of Dahmer and the sort of the grisly side of the crimes, and I really wasn't. I said, I'm more interested in his psychology. I'm more interested in what led him to become this person, his background, his childhood. And uh, so I think because of that, um, he said to me, well, you know, I've got some notes and I've got uh, some things you might want to look at, some notes and and, uh, reports and things that were from way back in 91. And he said, if you're interested in taking a look at this, we can, you know, I can answer any questions if you have and we can conduct an interview. So there was kind of something that was very pressing to me. I mean, as we're demonstrating right here, you can do an interview from anywhere at any time. And uh, lots of times when I've interviewed people for stories and articles, I have You know, just done it over email or, you know, over the phone. But there was something that was kind of pushing me to go. And so I hopped in my car and drove down to Wisconsin and met with him at a film festival. So I had a chance to meet Chris in person as well as Patrick Kennedy in person. And they were showing Chris's film, which was this documentary. And it was a chance for me to meet Patrick in person, for us to have dinner and talk, and for me to really interview him and talk about it. And it was at that point that he said, you know, why don't we maybe talk about working together on a manuscript or a book? Hmm. And so I was really just going to kind of help him to do it. Yep. I said, I'll read through all the stuff you gave me, and I'll kind of help you shape it into a book. But really, it was going to be his story, and uh, kind of let him have it all in terms of, of the um, you know, the notoriety or whatever that would come out of the result of him having this, this manuscript finished. And, uh, but before we could even get started, he passed away of a fatal heart attack about five days after we met in person. Wow. So I ended up doing the article, and um, I sent a copy of it to his widow, and she suggested I, she goes, why don't you just do whatever you can with the notes, because she said, I'm a nurse. She said, all of this stuff is just going to go back into his desk drawer. And that's it. So I really felt um, like I wanted to tell his story, and I really felt this was kind of a legacy for him, because he passed away of his heart attack. He was only 59 years old. And um, there was a lot, I think, a lot of him in the story. You know, it was a detective story about a very notorious serial killer. But to me, it's still a detective story.
0: Right. Boy, I must have. For Kennedy, I imagine he's talked to all, all sorts of people, interviewed for you know, investigating crimes, homicides, etc. But I bet he hadn't run yeah. into one like this before
1: that's right yeah like i think you know like a lot of detectives um you know he was a great storyteller and he was able to kind of share with me the different stories and i mean you know there's lots of people who are interested in the policing side of things for various reasons mine is always like how do they catch the guy <laughs> you know um, this is a little bit of a different uh and a unique story in that you know they found this criminal before they even knew that they had any victims really um, but there was one that had come and visited from um chicago I mean, as far as the family members knew of these missing men, um, they had disappeared. Like, they didn't know that they were dead. They just knew that they had gone away or that they had gone to a mall or they had, you know, said they were going to go to a party or a bar and that they just were never seen again. But it wasn't as though there were bodies littering the streets of Milwaukee or even the outskirts of Milwaukee. Um, There was no sign that there was anything violent going on. It was just that these men simply disappeared.
0: Were they people of high-risk lifestyles?
1: Um... To a certain extent, yeah. I mean, these were guys that were really independent. Um, You know, I guess they were, you know, um, vulnerable in that they were, um, you know, they were sort of independent and that no one would really necessarily see them as potential victims. I mean, Dahmer saw them as victims because he knew what he was going to do with them once he had um, engaged with them enough that they gained his and had gained their trust he was going to bring them back to his apartment, you know, his lair, if you will, and he was going to um, sort of dispatch of them as uh, as uh, quietly and as effectively as he could, which usually meant lacing, them, lacing their drinks with something and then smothering them or strangling them. But, um, but, you know, they were vulnerable in that, you know, he was able to gain their trust. But, you know, for the most part, when people would re- respond to the police and say, Um, you know, we've got a missing uh, brother or we've got a missing cousin, they would take a picture, uh, like, look at the picture of these men and say, well, these are, like, strong, strapping men. Like, these are not guys that are going to be victimized. So they were victims, they were vulnerable once they were in Dahmer's hands, but they weren't necessarily, like, they weren't, um, say, of a sex sex worker on the street that will just sort of jump into the car and then they're kind of at the mercy of the killer. Um, You know, these guys, I think in their own minds, you know, they still have free will up until the point that they accepted a drink that Dahmer had fixed for them.
0: Boy, that's a scary situation. He probably came off originally as rather, I mean, they wouldn't have gone with him unless he exhibited some degree of charm or attraction or pleasantness you know be mm-hmm. scuzzy yeah
1: well that was that was absolutely Dahmer's way right like he was sort of a nice polite deferential young man and he was always very yes sir no sir very polite um, he would buy drinks for guys in the bars and uh, and he would offer them the money you know when come back to my apartment and i'll take some pictures of you and then I'll give you some money. So so he had a couple of things that he would do to sort of, um, you know, gain their trust and also gain their interest in him.
0: Much to their uh, demise.
1: Exactly, it? yeah. And he was, as, as, I don't know if you've noticed or if you're watching memes at all, cause especially after the Netflix show came out last year, but uh, there was sort of this, like, and it still is out there, this sort of, like, Dahmer attraction. There's a lot of young fangirls who think that Dahmer is quite... Quite the honey, and uh, oh, yeah. uh, people—you know—people of all genders—who sort of found him to be a very attractive man. And even Kennedy himself said, once they said, you know, they, when they saw him for the first time, they said he's a nice-looking guy. Um, when they were investigating him and talking to some of his uh, the people that he's associated with, they all said, you know, he was quite popular amongst gay men. You know, he was considered a honey, a catch. Huh.
0: That's so strange. And yet he must have had a terrible fear of abandonment, you know, that he's yes, keeping Yeah, absolutely, in the
1: yeah. Yeah, I think that was sort of the root of all of his, uh, his fears and his anxiety was the idea of being left alone. And, uh, you know, as soon as, I mean, he eventually got to the point where he was killing regularly. But I think initially, once he had sort of adopted this idea of bringing someone back to his place, it wasn't until they said, "I need to leave. I need to go. I have a family. I have a job. I have to go to. I have to go home to go to bed. Whatever." As soon as they sort of said that they were leaving, that's when they really um, became his victims. Like he was going to victimize them.
0: Yeah, you know, no one's going to leave me. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> had that with his parents, right, like those abandonment issues came um, from a very place in his life when he was very young in that his dad, uh, you know, seemed like a decent man, he was very hard-working, but he was away from home a lot. He was often at work and, uh, you know, he was uh, studying and he was just a really busy guy. His mother, who was um, at home with the boys, there was him and his younger brother, um, she suffered from psychiatric problems and uh, she had mental illness issues. So she was, when she was really in these states of mental illness, she would often be hospitalized. So she would be, you know, not in the household, she'd be in a psychiatric hospital. Um, and then when she would come home, she'd be heavily medicated. And so she would be sleeping or, you know, not really available to them.
0: Well, so would, in many ways... Who would, I, who would take care uh, of him when his mom was non
1: well, I kind of I kind of guess that he sent it for himself, you know. Like they, she was present in the present in the home, but you know it doesn't sound like she was paying all that much attention to him.
0: Ah, so there you have it, an attention deficit disorder.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Sorry about that, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Once a disjockey, always a disjockey. There's no way of getting around it. I am um, ashamed. <laughs> you're, you're ashamed. I'm the one who said it. Why are you ashamed? Well, speaking of the uh, the uh, Netflix series, you know, uh, My Friend Dahmer, whatever it was called. Uh, did you see
1: that? I did. Yeah, all ten episodes of it.
0: Yes. Uh, how accurate was it?
1: You know what, I was very surprised at how accurate they got it. And uh, there were some areas of the story where they kind of deviated from the truth a little bit. And I'm sure that was completely done for... Um, you know, uh, artistic license, as they say. Um, But, I mean, I think the acting was great. I think that they really kind of captured Dahmer. And I was really curious about how they were going to do that. I mean, I would say props to the director and the actor who played him um, because, you know, I sort of was thinking about it, you know, in the weeks leading up to when it was coming out. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, like, it's really interesting, I would imagine, for an actor to play a very flamboyant character or someone that has a lot of interesting things about them. But Dahmer was so bland and he was sort of, like, you know, almost invisible. And I thought, how are they going to have a film about a guy who is so, um, you know, sort of nondescript, uh, boring even, you know. But I think they captured it in a way because it really showed how it was that he struggled with um, socialization, how he struggled to have friends. At a very young age, he started to rely on alcohol, you know, and that was such a big part of his life. The relationship he had with his parents and uh, his dad, and you know his upbringing and living in kind of a rural area of the country, and um, you know his um, having difficulties with his sexuality and uh, at that time in history how were gay men you know looked upon basically. <clears throat> yeah, it was. So, yeah, the, the Netflix thing I thought was excellent. I thought they did a great job. One of the things I'm quite interested in is I, I just read I think this week that they are going to do another two seasons of it, and I'm thinking what are they also are they going to cover because they kind of yeah, did a the lot
0: return of Jeffrey Dahmer.
1: Yeah. Well, this is what I mean. They did from him as a young boy to him in, in uh, prison and dying like dead, you know, when they was killed in prison. So I'm sort of wondering like, what are they going to kind of focus on, on those two other seasons, but I'm sure they'll do a good job.
0: Yeah. Well, they did, you know, uh, well, they actually did four versions or four, three sequels to the original psycho, uh,
1: could be, yeah, for sure. And the, yep, the fourth one like was a flashback a more. to
0: his childhood. But they continued the story. Yes. Uh, at least they right. kept Dahmer the same age. Uh, I read the book Psycho, uh, that was adapted, of course, uh, to the famous movie starring Anthony Perkins, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. In the book, uh, Norman Bates is 40 some years old and heavy set and overweight. In the movie, of course, mm-hmm. he's like 20 something. Mm-hmm. And looks like Anthony Perkins. <laughs> you know? Right, yeah. But, and it worked, you know, made the appropriate yeah. changes. Right. You know, it's yeah. This is a little bit off topic, but I thought I'd mention, I don't know if you ever read the book. It's a fantastic book called Gone But Not Forgotten by Philip Margolin, who is actually an attorney in Portland, Oregon. Brilliant, brilliant mystery book. Uh, in fact, he got a $3 million advance, if you can imagine that. For the book, wow. yeah, you don't see that quite often. Um, all right, guys, you're on yeah. the wrong end of the business. Yeah, yeah. No, he's on the same end of the business that I am. But, uh, <laughs> but when they made the TV movie uh, of the adaptation of the book, which was a big success, yep. every male part in the original story was female, and all the females were male. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. yeah. Because it just worked better for the TV audience, for the character instead of a woman, that's one to be a woman instead of a man. Mm-hmm. And it, same right. exact this story, yeah. but just changed yeah. the genders. Which I thought was kind of interesting. Right, you that's
1: Yeah, yeah. Free, well, I was, I was dead. About it. You can't change
0: genders uh, yeah. midstream like that yeah. anymore. No, out no. Not, not, not in a TV movie. <laughs> <laughs> not if it's a Hallmark film.
1: Yeah, I was thinking that they, that one of the things that they could do is, um, like, they could sort of focus on areas where, you know, where there was sort of one episode where they sort of dealt with them a little bit in high school. Well, they could kind of flesh that out a little bit more, you know, and kind of explore that. There's also, you know, in terms of him moving to Milwaukee and kind of first getting into killing or some of the victims, you know, like they focus on one victim, uh, Tony, which was the one of death. Uh, or hearing impaired and uh, you know and they did it was it was an amazing episode you know so maybe they're going to do more of that kind of specialized more detailed storytelling
0: Yeah, well, Hart Fisher who's a good friend of mine uh, who has uh, uh, who is that you or me that's the wind uh, American Horse. he did the uh, the comic uh, young Jeffrey Dahmer years ago
1: right and right and yeah. of course he,
0: he reprinted it and put it back out again after the TV show Right, yeah. yeah. Like, How could you do a comic book about Jeffrey Dahmer? Kids shouldn't read that. It's not for kids. It's just right. happens to be in that <laughs> format. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it would be like Donald Duck eating people or something. Oh, it's that's, I think uh, that's well, you. Uh,
1: The graphic the That no, they did make Into a film Was also very good You know And that did focus On his high school time Before he did any killing You know But uh, that was also A really good movie that's About five or six years ago Now That that came out So yeah. I
0: did a couple films On Bundy too, Not Al Bundy yeah. But uh, Ted Bundy <laughs> <laughs> Oh my <laughs> Oh boy <laughs> If I had a few million People like you I could go on tour Oh dear what? Um, what did
2: uh, What did our detective do in interrogation uh, to to get Dahmer to to talk about his crimes? Uh,
1: well, with Kennedy, like like when he first came into the room, you know, he sort of asked Jeff, like, "How are you? Um, you know, do you need anything? Can I get you a cup of coffee? How about a pack of cigarettes?" Um, are you hungry? Do you want a sandwich? Like he sort of catered him a little bit, you know, kind of just making sure that he was comfortable, kind of getting him into a little bit of a comfortable state of mind. Because don't forget, like all of this was unfolding and it was sort of happening very fast. People coming, approaching the apartment. Um, they had to send, you know, like that uh, forensic teams in there. Sure enough, the media shows up. So there's all this sort of chaos and everything that's going on around him. But meanwhile, Kennedy is in the interrogation room with just Dahmer. And he's, you know, in that sort of half an hour to an hour timeline, what happened? Uh, Kennedy has showed up at work. He sat and had a chat with his partner. They get the call from the uh, captain that says, you got to go, you're next on the rotation. you got to go check this out at this apartment. Um, he meets Jeffrey Dahmer for the first time. He sees a head in the refrigerator. They get him, Dahmer, packed up into a car and down to the police station. So, you know, you can just imagine where Kennedy's head is with all of this. He's only 37. I don't know if that came up at all, but at the time he was only 37 years old. So, I think his first instinct was, you know, we got to kind of just sort of settle everything down. So, he went into the room. Um, you know, Dahmer was had been drunk earlier and he was sort of coming, starting to come down a little bit. So, I think his first instinct was like, we've got to get this guy comfortable. we got to get this guy, put him at ease. And um, so I think he started off that way just by kind of befriending him and just saying, like, whatever you need, just ask me, buddy, and I'm here. And then, you know, Dahmer started to, um, before he even started to open up, though, I think he said, um, you know, like he was worried that this guy sitting here was going to start to judge him. He's being not- mad to me but once he starts to hear about things or see things or you know hold things um, he's going to hate me and uh, and kennedy assured him you know no i just want to hear what you have to say i'm not going to judge you that's not my job i'm just here to listen to what you have to say
0: that was really good he's a very good yeah. detective
1: yeah, because I think a lot of detectives, you know, they might have just wanted to march in there and really kind of um, assert their domination, assert their authority in terms of a, the, yeah, because it's a power thing, right? Like, if nice. you're interrogating somebody, somebody's got to be in control, and I think the cops, that's probably their first instinct was, you know, we got to sort of take control of the situation. Um, I think Kennedy kind of let Dahmer dictate it a little bit in the beginning um, and just kind of said, you know, like, let it, let's let this unfold let's talk about what we saw in your refrigerator
0: yeah yeah that would be a good topic to bring up like where's the, where's <laughs> I mean, the rest like, of the stop. guy <laughs> 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 yes, you talk yes, about the exactly. elephant in the room we got the head in the refrigerator Mm.
1: Exactly, yep, yep. But, I mean, it, it was so effective what Kennedy did in that once, uh, once Dahmer did start to um, relax a little bit and started to talk and was answering Kennedy's questions, you know, he decided, like, you know what, you are that guy. I'm not talking to anybody else. You are the guy I'm talking to. And, you know, they tried to bring other detectives in, maybe more senior detectives, and uh, Dahmer was just going to shut down. So very um, abruptly, the captain at the time said, no, uh, Kennedy, you stick with him. If he goes to the washroom, you go to the washroom with him. You know, he wants a glass of water. You know, you're the one that's going to get it for him, and you are going to be his confidant.
0: It's very smart, kind of like Red Reddington and Elizabeth Keene and Blacklist. Uh, My favorite show. Mm, hey, 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 did they portray Kennedy properly in the show?
1: Well, you know, they, they, just, they didn't really touch on that very much. Like, they, they kind of didn't really focus on the detective side of the story. There was so much other stuff going on. Uh, There was a character, like an actor, played by, you know, I don't know who, but it was a Patrick Kennedy character. And uh, so he was sort of present in a few places. Um, They showed him, I think, at one point in the uh, interrogation room with Dahmer and his partner, Murphy. They also talked a little bit um, when they were showing and going and and talking to the families of the victims once they had been identified. So there were a few places where uh, Kennedy was represented, but not nearly enough that you could kind of get a sense of the man. Um, And certainly not a sense of the relationship between Kennedy and Dahmer.
0: Did they have the mustache right? They certainly did. (laughs) Good, good. That's that's a real wider mustache he he had.
1: Yeah, yeah. and he was like 6'8", you know, so the actor they had was a fairly tall man, not as tall as Kennedy, but fairly tall. But you know what this did for me? I was kind of pleased. It was like, oh, that's too bad. You know, Kennedy was not getting the recognition that he deserved. But then it makes me think, well, you know, maybe this book, the Grilling Dahmer book, might as something that some other filmmaker at some point will want to focus on is more the relationship between the oh, two Oh, definitely.
0: It's, it's absolutely fascinating. It's a fascinating book. It's a fascinating true story. And I'm so happy that, uh, I mean, that, this book came out, I can't remember who the original publisher was of it. But,
1: um... Uh, uh, came out, yeah, it came out in 2016. That was uh, Poisonberry Press, which was just a little thing in Canada, like a little outfit in Canada. But... Uh, Blue took it
0: over, and it came out in 2021. 2021. Who came up with the brilliant title, Grilling Dog? <laughs>
1: that was Steve at Wild Blue Press.
0: Uh, uh, that, that, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Steve Jackson would come up with that. Love Steve. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Definitely, definitely memorable. Definitely. <laughs> a lot of people asked me in the beginning, is this a cookbook? Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> to serve man, it's a cookbook.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: it's a, it really is an incredible story. And uh, it's tragic that he, he passed away so suddenly. Uh
1: Yeah, well, that's one of the sad things for me about it is that he never got to see any of this. He never got to see that his story came out in book form, um, that there was interest in his story. You know, that was all um, that happened afterwards, so she was happy that this was um, a kind of a legacy, something for his kids to um, have, you know, as kind of a a memoir, a bit of their dad. But, um, you know, I think for her as someone who lives in Milwaukee and as so many of the residents expressed this last year, you know, it really kind of, every time anyone brings up his name or brings up the cases, um, you know, it kind of brings it all back again. And even though it's been 32 years now, um, you know, it still sort of seems really fresh to a lot of people. And uh, just, you know, the city kind of uh, I mean, it wasn't you know. Milwaukee is a, a fairly good-sized city, but it's not humongous, right? So people would know the streets, and a lot of people realized that. Oh my gosh, you know how many how many men disappeared right under our noses? And so it's a very personal story. Plus, there was a lot of stuff to go with that went on about race and how some so many men uh, disappeared, and there wasn't more interest from police to find them. You know, to find out what happened to them.
0: That's, well considering these sociological aspects, and as you mentioned, these men did not seem like the victim type it's understandable that they kind of slide under the radar that's
1: right right and you know even though a few people might have said oh well i saw him at a bar he left with a pawn pan like that didn't necessarily mean that that was the last time he'd ever been seen, seen you know um so even if people did kind of remember seeing him with i mean it was sort of a very um you know very come and go kind of community you know if you're at a dance club or whatever you know having a few drinks you know, people just assumed, oh, well, I guess just moved on or left town right. or went to visit family. And people are always ready with the, the reasons why somebody isn't
0: where you expect them to be. Well, that's the worst example of that, of course, is the hog farm murders up in Canada where, mm-hmm. right. uh, where the, the, the other prostitutes were going to the cops and say, someone is murdering us and we know who it is. We went out there to the hog farm and we peeked through the window and there was our friend. Uh, hanging from a meat hook. Uh, Could you please go arrest this guy? And he goes, no. We really don't have the resources, and just left it alone. Right. You know, which was right. Yeah. Horribly tragic.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. When you're talking about very, very vulnerable populations of, uh, of any kind of community, um, you know, this doesn't seem to be the same sense of urgency. You know, yeah. when it's um, people. You know, some people just seem to attract more attention. You know.
0: Well, that's like uh, even with the Spokane serial killer, Robert Lee Yates, the first people he killed were actually friends of my family in, in Walla Walla. And they were a well-known couple, you know, up, upper middle class, out for a picnic. And uh, he finally acted out his fantasy and he murders them. Using a 357, which was dangerous for everybody, he quickly learned if you're going to shoot somebody in the head with their heads in your lap, don't you use a 357. That's what he went to a 22. Uh, he learned that if uh, he was going to have a hobby of, of murdering people, he was going to. Uh, murder people with high-risk lifestyles, which is how they, these women, he's not murdering nice people like us, forgetting that these are nice people like you, because they're human beings with families and kids and everything else. Mm -hmm. And uh, at least the Spokane Police Department, much to their credit, uh, took the proper approach in that they went, murder far exceeds any other crime in its severity. And they knew if they were ever gonna catch the guy, they needed the help of drug dealers and prostitutes. And they went to them and said, we don't care who you're screwing. We don't care what you're charging. We don't care what drugs you're selling. We don't care what you got on you. None of that matters compared to the fact that there's someone murdering people and we need your help. That's right, yeah. And that made all the difference in the world uh, compared to Tacoma that still just used the same old attitude of well, let's lock these people up. That way they won't be murdered.
1: (laughs) Right, exactly. And, I mean, I know it's always easy to to say these things afterwards, but, I mean, I think the police also will say that often those members of those uh, communities they're not necessarily huge fans of police, right? No, so, they're not. It really becomes about building the relationships, right, so that those uh, people can feel that they can trust what they're going to say to the police. It's not going to be like, oh, you're going to turn around and um, and arrest me, you know, if there's are a prostitute, you know, it's actually going to be, this is just a fair exchange of communication and information, you know. Right. Because those, those, uh, those folks are the ones that are the eyes out on the street. So those are a great source of tips. And I think a lot of the tips that came out of that Spokane uh, killer came from, you know, it was like a white car. Um, you know, these are the kinds of things that they could look for. They could sort of put together the timing of the victims when they were last seen. Um, so, you know, they, they provided a lot of the information that eventually resulted in them narrowing down the, um, the scope of the investigation.
0: Yeah, it was a quite, I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but... We could have caught him a lot earlier if a guy hadn't made a simple error and wrote down Corvair instead of Corvette on the ticket.
1: Yeah, yep, I do remember that, yeah, yeah.
0: That's uh, very true. Yeah, and he
1: was, I mean, he was a very interesting kind of guy, too, because, you know, he was, like, ex-military, I think, and he had a big family, married, five, yeah, kids. five kids. Yeah, five kids, taught Bible you know, class, Yeah, Mr., Mr. Suburban, you know, and uh, great guy next door if you need to borrow, a, like, a lawnmower or whatever, you yeah. know, so he was able lawnmower to... Lawnmower uh, may have some blood on way. it, but... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he was he was able to kind of like Portray himself as, you know, the uh, All-American father and uh, Husband, but, you know, yet he had this Other side to him where he Was uh, uh, targeting people and killing People
0: You got a question there,
2: Bugs? Yes, I do um, So He, he uh, Pat goes into the room To talk to him and get him To start talking about what's going on And he isn't how does, how does he prepare himself for what he's about to hear? Or was it just a complete shock of the, the depravity of this individual? I, I can't imagine sitting in a room listening to somebody dispassionately talk about taking a drill and drilling into somebody's brain so they'd
1: be more docile. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, well, I think it was in the beginning kind of a combination of just being kind of, you know, what it was all very unbelievable. Um, so they're sort of just, you know, like getting him to talk, they're jotting down, he's asking questions. Um, but at the same time, there are police officers at the apartment that are going, starting to go through everything. And this, of course, is not all happening in that first night. This is happening over the course of several weeks. But I think in the early stages, he just really had to kind of, um, any surprise that he felt, uh, I think he just kind of had to dampen it and just kind of keep a straight face and just sort of, almost as if this is something that he would hear from people every day. Um, but then I guess as things went along, um, there were things that were matching up, so that they were hearing things from uh, from Dahmer, and then they were able to and they were able to compare with what the detectives were telling them they were finding in the police because they had to inventory everything in the apartment. So, so I think at that point it was starting to become. I mean, it was all awful, and it was all really like, never heard of anything like this before. And I think it was almost to the point of, when is it going to, when are we gonna hear the the absolute worst of what's to come? When they started to realize, and um, they had come into a little conference with their captain after the captain had talked to the medical examiner, and they realized, you know what, there's not enough, when what he's telling us in terms of numbers, there's not enough bodies and body parts. So that's when they realized that he was cannibalizing some of his victims. So you know it's kind of like you know like you hear one thing and you think okay well that's probably as worse as we're going to hear, but then you get another call or another conversation. So it he kept getting worse and worse and worse as the time went on. And I think he just had to kind of mentally prepare himself to go in to do the job and then kind of just you know think about yeah. it later on yeah. when he was at home when he had his downtime. And he also wrote a lot of stuff down because in the time that I was reading through a lot of the stuff. It was kind of happening, it was happening to him. You know, I think he had to put a lot of that down just to get it out of his head.
0: Well, uh, it must be a, a rough job. I mean, how do you hear all that stuff and then not take it home with you? at like, or maybe you do.
1: Well, you know, I think it absolutely does toughen people up. Like, uh, I remember Kennedy telling me he, he stayed with the police uh, and, and uh, homicides for another 10 years. Like, he retired in 2001. And uh, I said to him, what was it that made you decide you wanted to quit the force after so long? And he said, well, he said he just got tired after, you know, a while he went into an apartment with his partner and they came across a crib where there was a dead baby like a dead newborn in the crib and it was because the mother had a drug addiction and was just not there for the child and he said you know you can only see those kind of scenes so much before you just kind of say enough i can't can't do this anymore so at that point is when he decided he was going to go back to school and become a criminologist
0: ah smart tragic loss
1: train the police
0: you know in other countries such as scandinavia if you're a a mental health practitioner. Uh, and you're doing a lot of work with crazy people, if that's not probably a politically correct term, <laughs> but uh, after a few <laughs> years, they pull you off. They, they put you in the psychiatric ward for vacation uh, because they know that it has an impact on you. And we don't do that here, yeah. but in other countries they do. They say, okay, you've yeah. experienced enough of this sort of trauma by proxy. You need a break. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Well, and they did. Like the the police department did bring in um, a psychiatrist who talked to the officers, Pat Kennedy and his partner. Uh, but you know, they kind of they kind of laughed it off. You know, at the time, I don't know if it was just because they were in the thick of it, and it was just it was all happening too too immediately that they just couldn't process it yet to discuss it with somebody who could maybe help them. But um, they had their meetings with him, and you know, just didn't really feel they felt that they were handling it. All. They felt that they had enough support system in their life that they could manage it um, they kind of laughed at
0: the guy and yeah, they probably didn't think they were going to need it but they might have it's like in the uh, they might have after the fact yeah, yeah. Like with the uh, in Alaska it was the Kirby Anthony uh, where he murdered his aunt and her two little kids when they found the you know the crime scene. They told the the other officers who were arriving, they told them ahead of time, what you're going to see is probably something worse than you've ever seen before, and yeah. if you don't think you can handle it, don't you don't have to. We'll have someone else yeah. go in because it may be too traumatic.
1: Right. Yeah. And you also have to flash back thirty something years and say, you know, they might have had. Uh, you know, some things in place to help officers. But, you know we, know, we know so much more about mental illness and PTSD and trauma and, you know, how much the psyche can take before it starts to, to break down. So I think, you know, at that time, um, he did have support. So he did have his wife. Um, he did have his kids, you know, and I think it was just sort of the interest in the case as well. Like, he was very focused on it and he was very determined to just do a good job, you know?
0: Yeah, it seems like a hell of a nice guy.
1: Mm-hmm. He was He was a really nice man Yeah And nice
0: people are often sensitive people too He's probably sensitive to the victims And uh, Probably there was very sensitive himself But it, it had to To uh, to prey on him uh, We had on the show several years ago And uh, I do not know It's not even in the archives sadly Because it was on the old Alvar radio website And that was uh, a great detective from Tacoma who had uh, cases such as this. And uh, we had a conversation on the air about, you know, how do you handle this after a while, you know? Uh, And he was like third-generation detective. uh, Right. uh, What I found interesting is this was a guy of really high ethics, very similar to the fellow you're talking about, Kennedy, a very likable guy. And then he was talking about a particular homicide case that I was familiar with. And I was familiar with the court proceedings. And the police had testified that he had the primary suspect under surveillance for X amount of time, for a few days before they arrested him. And it also came out a testimony that during that same time period, the suspect had moved the body. And I said to him, if they had him under surveillance that means they watched him dig up the body and move it
1: right
0: i said so why wasn't anything done then mm-hmm. and he just looked out at the ground and was silent for quite a while and then he just said well we closed the case and that that bothered me, I think, maybe as much more than it bothered him because there right. was a dissonance there between what is right and what was done, and I caught it. Right. And uh, it was embarrassing for him. But he was a brilliant detective, and he was one of those people who was as kind and as sensitive as he was with a great sense of justice, which Kennedy has also. He could follow through on these things. You know, like an advocate for the victim. He was going to get to it. He was going to, you know, solve the case. And, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, uh, there was a TV show. Uh, it was always with Deadly Sins or whatever that well, was. Motive of Murder is Cracking the Case was the TV show. And uh, the widow of the man who was murdered wouldn't do any media stuff at all, except when he went to her as the detective who... You know, find solve the case, and asked her to do it uh, with me on TV. She agreed, and it was the only time she Mm -hmm. she did it because of her great respect for him uh, and Mm -hmm. the way he handled the case. So it makes a difference to the life of the victims, as as well as uh, you know. But it's tragic uh, all the way around. You look at someone like Dahmer. You know, how did he wind up in this this mindset? where he was so terrified of abandonment that he murders people in his apartment, chops their head off, and puts it in the refrigerator like it's a turkey pot pie. Well, you you forget, Burl, that
2: before he would kill them, he would incapacitate them. Yeah. And he he would have them there for a period of time in a condition that they were physically incapable of leaving. Yeah, they were still alive, but it effectively, in air quotes, a lobotomy. Yeah, and this mm-hmm. uh, this prevented any possibility of abandonment. And meanwhile, he's drinking heavily. Yes, and at some point, he would get tired of that play toy and want and want a new one. So
0: it's a matter uh, of, he, wanted, he says, I want a full bottle in front of me, and I want them a, to have a, a bo- full yeah, front yes, of me. I the would rather have, have
2: a bottle in front of me than a front Both of the, the bottle. Yes, 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 yes. So <laughs> we got her on that one. Jesus Christ, man, I was I was 10 when I heard that joke.
0: Yeah, well, she didn't hear it when she was 10. She had to wait till the enforcement of experience of being on our show again. <laughs> Oh dear yeah, Sometimes I wonder oh how, how America has continued To allow us to do this show for 15 years um, There are a handful of
2: regular True crime podcasts And every one of them Is so dead serious That you want to cry <laughs> I know, I want to cry listening to our show We have one very good friend from up north of this show Whose monotonous tone And Deliberate delivery Is perfect for those Who are insomniacs And yet he's an, a, a brilliant interviewer Oh yes but he's just It's just this uh, uh.
0: And yet you know when he is a guest on our show how uh, He's not like that No When he's the guest he's amusing as can be
2: one of the things oh wow yeah one of the things i've learned being not a professional in in this end of the business is uh, is how to listen to the answers and see if there's anything in, interesting to the listener in the answer that wasn't expounded upon and these other interviewers just don't do that a really interesting right, yeah. tidbit
0: comes out of an answer, and they don't follow up. That's because they're waiting mm-hmm. for the answer to, end, to answer to ask the next no, question. No, no, no. They, they get
2: the answer, then they move on to the, the, to next, the next one, yeah. Topic. And yeah they, what, they have
1: their list of questions, and they don't deviate from that.
2: <laughs> right. So when I listened to, uh, when you were on originally, um, I listened to your interviews with, you know, with Panic and... Uh, Um, even Steve I listen to all the interviews and I listen to your answers and I go that's interesting and I write down what to ask you
0: it's like follow ups Mm.
2: yeah yeah interesting Mm -hmm. things that I you know like a a a silly example Um, did he did Dahmer ever feel there was an opportunity to make amends
1: Yes, I think once he was captured and once they, uh, once he kind of came down from being drunk um, and he realized really the true horror of what he had been doing, um, he felt quite remorseful. And, um, you know, this is one of the things that they discussed that uh, Kennedy and and, uh, Dahmer discussed was, you know, what? What could he do to kind of um, make amends? Not not necessarily make amends, but what could he do to help in terms of the situation? And he was, was absolutely pivotal in helping to identify victims. Because, again, it being such a long time ago, they could not rely on DNA to help identify who these men were. Um, They really had to rely on sort of anecdotal um, stories from family members of when people were last seen. They had photographs, family photographs, arrest photographs. so you know they cut but they really, really needed uh, Dahmer there to kind of fill in all of the gaps of the timeline and of the story of what happened to them. Mm-hmm. And Dahmer was actually quite remarkable in terms of his memory. He could, you know, he didn't necessarily remember the names of everybody, but he certainly remembered the details of where he picked various people up and how he was able to persuade them to come back to his apartment with him. Um, so, <clears throat> yeah, so he was um, he was absolutely instrumental in, in making this um, well, that's like making son this of work. sam
0: <laughs> you know son of sam uh, stopped talking to dogs and started talking to the cops it had a total change of heart and uh, he was very helpful yeah and and other oh, others other
2: serial killers use the in air quotes the closure um yeah, as a uh, Enclosure as a weapon to to get things better, yeah. a better cell yeah. or or more privileges. I'll help you find right. the bodies. Yeah. You help me. Yeah. Well, then exactly. Bundy,
1: Bundy was a classical because yes. he was on death row and towards the end of his countdown of his life, you know, he was saying, well, he started to confess, first of all, and then he kind of tried to persuade them, and he's like, I'm the only one who knows where all the bodies are buried, and was hoping that that would extend his uh, time on death row by another few years. Didn't, but um, but I mean, he did have a couple of days of execution, and then that time, they were able to gather the uh, police from the various uh, you know, states and kind of uh, identify as many victims as they could. But I mean, he was doing it. It was a pro, uh, quid pro quo for him. He wanted to try and get something
0: out of it. It was interesting you mentioned that, that because uh, this just came up in uh, in discussion uh, off the air and another topic, and in a book that's going to be coming out probably next year that I'm doing with Alex Merklinger. Uh, Alex and I, uh, much to our surprise, were. Uh, unofficially or officially asked to participate uh, in some criminal investigations as distance readers or, uh, I don't like using the word term, psychics, but that's the term that most people use. And there was no press on this. So we didn't get, you know, we didn't say, hey, we're advising the cops on this investigation. You know, they came to us, and we just said, well, mm-hmm. this is what we see, and, you know, and that's when Janice mm-hmm. was was kidnapped. And uh, I don't know if I ever told this story on the air before or not, but I was in Walla Walla, Washington. I got a phone call from a homicide detective in Seattle. He says, Burl, this is Detective So-and-so. Uh, I got a name and an age for you. And so I'm standing in my mom's kitchen. And I said, go ahead. He says, uh, Jan age 23, Seattle, Washington. And all I would do is just tell him what very first thing that came to mind. I said, she's dead. She's been in a small car. Uh, you'll find her body in Issaquah, which they did. Wow. And, and they asked by yeah. the guy who taught me uh, Alex Merklinger who was in Seattle at the time And they, they asked him and he said the same thing and they went and they found her and one other uh, body in this dump site in Issaquah and Alex said go back there's more and they didn't go back right. 15 years later Bundy said go back there's more and forty right. feet away, Alex was absolutely right. They found three more. We're running out of time, Burrow. Let's, uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's. Oh yes. Uh, let's talk
2: about uh, the the the, the, the,
0: the, uh, the vicarious meet and greet, not with Dahmer, uh, but with you. Uh, if we can get this on the uh, <laughs> up on the uh, podcast <laughs> platforms fast enough, uh, that's going to, today's Saturday, the original day of the broadcast. What day is your meet and greet? Uh, is that Tuesday uh, or it's coming
1: up on It's coming up on Tuesday, uh, April 18th. so this is coming up Tuesday. And it's um at eight o'clock pm. Central Standard Time. And it's just going to be kind of uh, very, very informal, but it's just going to be a reading from the book, Really Dahmer, and then uh, this gentleman who's hosting, Dan, and he and I are going to have kind of an interview conversation, and then there's also an opportunity for people to submit questions. They can go to the form to fill out the place to get the link, and if they want to submit a question, they can. So I'm looking forward to it, actually. It's going to be great.
2: And you've got a Wild Blue Press to find uh, the link to this?
1: Yeah, they can actually, um, if they go to the website, they can actually find the link for the form to sign up.
0: Great. And I'm going to post it uh, on our website and on Facebook and all those places, too, so people oh,
1: fabulous! call That's up great. and say,
0: they'll say, Robin, what are you wearing? Oh, stop.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, <Lord. laughs>
0: thanks so much for being our guest, Robin. With us. Always a pleasure. Grilling Dollar oh, by Robin Vaughn. Mar- You're Ryan. very welcome. Day. Hey, Burl, yeah. <laughs> what's next? Uh, good question. Oh, Magic Ben Allen and the Jimmy's of Decadence live from the Light Up Lounge on LRRadioLive.com. <laughs>
3: you can't be sung. Nothing you can say But you can learn how to play the game It's easy Nothing you can make that can't be made No one you can save But can't be saved Nothing you can do But you can learn how to be you in time It's easy